Why are we going to spend an entire episode talking about being a single follower of Jesus Christ? Is singleness the goal? I thought the goal of Christian ministry was to build up families and to help people achieve their greatest level of spiritual maturity, which, of course, we have come to understand that the highest calling for a Christian is to be a husband or a father or a wife and mother. Isn't isn't that the goal of the Christian life? Well, of course not. The goal of the Christian life and the highest calling for a Christian is not to be a husband and father or a wife and mother, although these are excellent roles and callings to which the Lord calls some. But the highest calling for a follower of Jesus Christ is to be like Jesus Christ. That's the highest calling in the life of the believer. But also, when we talk about single Christian adults, we need to understand who exactly we're talking about. Did you know that according to the United States government, 46.4% of U.S. adults, U.S. citizens over the age of 18, are single? That means that there are 117.6 million single adults in the United States today. That is an important mission field. Now, when we talk about that statistic, we're talking about people who have never been married. We're talking about those who have been divorced. We're talking about those who are widowed. As followers of Jesus Christ, have we done a good enough job as the church encouraging those who are single, those 117 million individuals in our community? Have we done a good job of communicating what the goal of the Christian life is? Are we a resource and a help to those who are single? In today's episode, we're going to spend some time talking about some principles for single adults. And if you're not single and you're listening and you're wondering, why am I even spending time listening to this? Again, I want you to be prepared as a married follower of Jesus Christ to provide good instruction and encouragement for the single adults God has placed within your life. today's episode, we're going to be talking about two separate articles. One is uh, titled, Four Things God Says to Singles. Uh, It was written by Vaughn Roberts, originally published in Living Out, which is a publication with which I am unfamiliar, uh, but it was republished on the Gospel Coalition's website, which I follow regularly. And then an article from Desiring God, which would be John Piper's ministry. Uh, That article is titled, Single But Not Lonely, Living Well While Unmarried, and it was written by John Lee. So as we look at this today, I want to just discuss a few principles for single Christians who are listening today. Uh, There will be parts of this for the married believer to take away and, and hopefully will serve as a basis of encouragement and support that you can provide. But at the end of this episode, I will give some specific ways that married believers can encourage those who are single. And so to begin this, Uh, Let's understand uh, the first principle for single Christians, that singleness is a gift from God. Singleness is a gift from God. I'm going to read first uh, from the Gospel Coalition article. It says, So much in our society is structured around couples. It's often just assumed that adults will have a partner and that there's something rather odd about them if they don't have any uh, for a period of time. Oscar Wilde summed up this view of many. Celibacy is the only sexual perversion, he said. There's nothing new in this negative view of celibacy. In the first century, Rabbi Eliezer said, any man who has no wife is no proper man. The Talmud went even further. The man who is not married at 20 is living in sin. 
Given that background, it is astonishing how positive the New Testament is about singleness. Paul speaks of it as a gift in 1 Corinthians 7.7, and Jesus says that it is good for those to whom it has been given in Matthew 19.11. I'm going to pause there and again remind you that when somebody says something like Rabbi Eliezer said, any man who has no wife is no proper man, what is that communicating about the Lord Jesus Christ? What about the Apostle Paul? Were they lesser men? Wow, I would hate to be the one who determines what manhood is based on that sort of a standard. Continuing in our reading, it says, A friend of mine once belonged to a young adult church group called Pairs and Spares. Single people can be made to feel like spare parts in their families, social groups, and churches. One man was so fed up with being asked, Are you still single? that he began to respond, Are you still married? We must resist the implication that singleness is second best. The Bible doesn't say so. Marriage is good but so is singleness. It has been given to some. But what I don't think I have, what if I don't think I have the gift of singleness? I don't find it easy being on my own, and I long to marry. Does that mean that I'm experiencing the second best? No. When Paul speaks of singleness as a gift, he isn't speaking of a particular ability some people have to be contently single. Rather, he's speaking of the state of being single. As long as you have it, it is a gift from God. Just as marriage will be God's gift if you ever receive it, we should receive our situation in life, whether it is singleness or marriage, as a gift of God's grace to us. And then considering in the Desiring God article, when it talks about marriage being a gift, it says this, the Apostle Paul makes an audacious claim, whereas in Genesis 2, God observes it is not good that the man should be alone. In Genesis 2.18, Paul tells the unmarried and the widows that it is good for them to remain single, as I am, in 1 Corinthians 7.8. Paul, when looking at the new, commun- uh, new covenant community, doesn't see marriagelessness as a curse, but as a gift. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Again, that's from 1 Corinthians 7.7. 7. I've spoken to dear saints who desire marriage and do not have the life they expected. If that describes you, God has not abandoned you. You're not stuck in a waiting room between celibacy and marriage. God desires his good, perfect, delightful will for you right now. James reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above. In James 1.17, Paul could certainly add, even your singleness. Now, last week, when I talked about the disparity the disparity between um, happy adults uh, in singleness and in marriage, I noted a statistic from Unheard, which is a publication that found, uh, well, they were reflecting upon a study that had been uh, already been published and found that there was a 30 percentage, uh, 30 point percentage gap between those who were married and those who were single. And so I, I shared a stat like that, and that is not a glowing endorsement of singleness, is it? So if somebody walked away from that really discouraged, I apologize. That was not the intent. And today, as you listen to this episode and you say, well, wait a minute, you shared that statistic last week, and this week you're talking about singleness being a gift, you're contradicting yourself. I'm really not. I think that the disparity in happiness does affirm the 
the goodness of marriage. And I talked about that last week. And I talked about it in that in those terms because I needed the audience to understand. I need all believers to understand that God's plan is a true blessing. Marriage isn't some prison, and those who are married are not enslaved. God has a good purpose for marriage, and it is a wonderful joy. It is a reflection of the goodness of the Lord. And so we celebrate his act of goodness and the gift that he has provided to those who are married. And so those who are married should be happy. They should find satisfaction in the gift that God has provided. But that does not mean that the believer should look at singleness and say that that is not a gift from God or as though they should be discontent because of the situation that they have found themselves. Instead, I think that that 30-point gap represents the way that our culture and sadly even how Christians have communicated about singleness. I think that we have done a poor job of communicating the gift that singleness is and we have undermined perhaps people's contentment. Well, how have we done that? I think that there are three ways. One, there are expectations. In the opening remarks, I noted that, you know, this sort of Christian cliche that we hear so often, whether it's Mother's Day or Father's Day, the highest calling for a woman is to be a mother, or the highest calling for a man is to be a father. And we hear these sort of Christian cliches, and we start to internalize them and believe that they are true. Now, if God has called you to those responsibilities, if God has so called you uh, and has given you that gift, then that is the plan that God has for you, and you are to walk in it. It is a sacred calling. It is a serious calling. But it's not the only calling. Again, the, the, the highest calling for the believer is to be increasingly like Jesus Christ. And so sometimes as Christians, we come alongside and we share cliches like that, or we hear them in our sermons, or perhaps we even do a poor job of communicating expectations where we expect that somebody is going to be married. We just expect that that is the norm, that somebody is inevitably going to be married. And so we ask a lot of questions. Hey, have you met anybody yet? Why are you still single? As we read in the one article, I don't encourage people snapping back with, are you still married, by the way? But people get annoyed hearing those sort of questions all the time. When are you going to have children? And somebody has to explain uh, what's going on in their lives and their health and other considerations. And that's just not our place as Christians to try to ask these sort of questions or to project certain expectations upon somebody's life as though they have to measure up with what we perceive the so-called norm is in our society, what we believe the good is that God has for them. Instead, we should entrust an individual to God's good plan for their lives. Again, remembering that 117 million Americans today find themselves as single adults. The next uh, contribution to this discontentment, I think, is our practices. Uh, Too often, uh, the actions and mentality of single Christians reflects those in secular society. And if people are chasing after the same ambitions, if they're not finding their contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ, if they're trying to gratify their flesh, and they're trying to act in ways that are immoral, um, sexually speaking, then you are going to find yourself uh, having a measure of discontentment. The reality is that we were not created for random uh, hookups. We were not created to have unattached physical relations with other people. These sort of actions and pursuing them and, and fueling thoughts like that will lead to discontentment. And so many, in our, so many in our society are violating the very chemistry in their brains, the very physiology of their body by giving themselves over habitually to strangers or to people in short-term relationships 
rather than in the marriage covenant. And so they are going to find that that lifestyle is unsatisfactory and it's going to lead to discontentment. And the third aspect of that, I've talked about contentment a few times already and discontentment, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, as, as the church, so often we've done a poor job of prioritizing contentment in whichever state, whatever condition we find ourselves in, to be content, whether it's rich, whether it's poor, whether it's single, whether it's married, whether it's in perfect health today, whether it's struggling in health, do we encourage our fellow believers to say, you know, God is good. He is sovereign. He has a good plan. I know that he loves me. Here are the plans and the purposes he has for me. Here are the promises he has. I can rest in those and place my confidence there. Do we do a good job of encouraging that? Or do we fuel the mentality that our culture has so often of, you know, if you want something, chase after it. If it feels good, do it. If you have a desire, then that desire needs to be met. It shouldn't be restrained. You should chase after it with whatever you have. And if you don't like what you have today, upgrade. We have an upgrade culture, the next new phone, the next new tablet. It's getting announced soon. Let's upgrade. Let's keep chasing that next new shiny thing. And so we're never content. And sadly, too often, Christian culture looks exactly like the secular culture at large. As followers of Jesus Christ, if we are going to see singleness as a gift, we need to have differing expectations. Uh, again, regarding our goal, our goal is increasingly to be like Jesus Christ, to find satisfaction and pleasure in the good purpose he has for our lives, to embrace practices that are consistent with a biblical standard for morality and lifestyle, and third, to embrace contentment, to celebrate where God has us, whatever that looks like, whether it is what we would have outlined and chosen for our lives or not. We trust in faith that our God is good, and he is able to meet our needs, and he and his plan is the abundant path for our lives. So the first principle there was that singleness is a gift from God. The second is that it is perfectly acceptable to desire to be married. In Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. Back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there were a number of Christian books that were published on dating or courting, uh, getting married. And in those books, so often, what was projected was that our heart attitude, our mentality had to be one of indifference. Like we didn't care whether we're married or not. We had to get to a place where we were stoic, where we were emotionless, where we didn't care at all. And we were just so happy and eager to be single. And only once you got to the place where you were like so excited to be single for the rest of your life, then would you be worthy of God placing a spouse across your path? But is that really what Christianity teaches? Is that really what the Bible teaches? Well, of course not. Uh, desiring something, desiring a good thing, the institution of marriage, desiring to have children, desiring to grow old with a spouse, uh, is not an evil desire. We don't have to be emotionless. We don't have to be robots. We can have a desire. If you're a single uh, Christian today, you can have a desire to be married down the road while at the same time being content. I don't think that these things have to be in conflict with one another. Now, an example of being discontent would be to say, God, I will only be faithful in my Christian service. I will only trust that you are good if you send a spouse across my path. 
I will only follow you if you meet all of the desires that I have for my life and these plans that I've outlined. You're going to meet them each step of the way or I'm not going to find satisfaction and joy in you. That would be discontentment. But if today you say, look, I'm a single Christian adult. I love the Lord. I'm trusting in God in the season. And if it continues uh, in perpetuum, then then it does. And I'm going to trust God throughout that duration of however long he has me as single, even if that's the rest of my life. But if he sends somebody across my path, if he sends a spouse across my path, then I'm, I'm going to be eager for that because that is the desire that I have. There is nothing at all wrong with that. And I felt the need to, to state that clearly today for you. The third is that uh, there are advantages to remaining single. And so there are some good advantages. And this is from the Desiring God uh, article. It says, what about singleness makes it a gift? And, and that's a really good question. What does singleness offer that marriage doesn't? If we cannot name the advantages that come with singleness, then despite our insistence that singleness is a gift, we don't have much to offer to those who are living a single life. So again, if you're married and listening to this and you're trying to provide encouragement and support for somebody, this is really important. The next couple of things that I say uh, from this article to take away and to be able to encourage somebody with. If you're a single Christian today, I want you to think about these and think through them and ask are these things true of my life? When we talk about advantages, so often we talk about them as hypothetical advantages, but they never become concrete. I think uh, years ago, I heard somebody talking about, about quitting smoking, and they were talking to somebody, and you've probably heard somebody have a conversation like this. They said, well, if you quit smoking, then in 15 years from now, looking at the number of packs they bought, you would have you'd have $100,000 in the bank if you just quit smoking today and you put all that money away. And the person you know, ask back, well, do you smoke? And they said, no. Well, where's your $100,000? They didn't have any, any answer. It's just having a hypothetical advantage is one thing. Taking advantage of that advantage is another. And so these are the three advantages that are outlined in this article, and I think they're so good. The first is focus. In a world full of distraction, singleness enables us to focus on Jesus without distraction. This isn't to say that we cannot honor Christ if we're married. God desires married couples to love and serve each other for his glory in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. But singles can devote themselves to him with fewer disruptions from good but competing desires. As singles, we're able to be single-minded. We can focus on honoring our Lord without the complexities of a spouse and children. Quiet mornings with Bible reading and prayer. Ministering to others without inter being up interrupted by naps and diaper changes. Fellowship without a curfew. Decisions about the future oriented towards gospel good without weighing familial costs. Singleness allows for undivided focus. I've known single Christians who have been able to further their education because of the financial freedom that they have, because the ability to travel and go live somewhere else, uh, to take a job that perhaps pays less for a season to be devoted to ministry because they have some more flexibility in those ways. And those are just a few examples of focus. The second is flexibility. Um, it says here that uh, let me check with my spouse is probably the most frequent response to an invitation extended to a married member at my church. Singles are advantaged in not carrying the weight of accounting for another person. We can say yes more often. 
When a church member texts me at 11.30 p.m. asking to meet or read the Bible, I can say yes. The, the uh, author of this article is a single adult. When a family at the church needs emergency babysitting, I can say yes. When life presents risky, God-glorifying opportunities, I can say yes. Singles capacity allows us to flex for the sake of the kingdom. The third is freedom. Paul states his desire for singles by saying, I want you to be free from anxieties in 1 Corinthians 7.32. Freedom from the obligations of marriage enables singles to do what married people cannot. Whereas marriage is helped by stable routine and clear obligations, singleness provides mobility. Valuing singleness doesn't diminish the value or dignity of marriage. Paul wrote both, both 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5. He can exalt the value of marriage and express his preference for singleness. Singleness provides good opportunities that marriage does not. So again, those three benefits, and you could add a lot to these. This is just a quick episode, and the articles I'm reading from are, are very condensed. But uh, the three advantages that were outlined here were focus, flexibility, and freedom. And I think that they're so good. The next principle for single Christians is live as a believer in whatever circumstance God has placed you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. Think back to the three advantages I just described. Focus, flexibility, and freedom. Focus on what? Flexibility to do what? Freedom to do what? In those cases, the benefits were all for the glory of God. It was, how can I maximize this season of my life? How can I maximize the gift that God has given me so that the church might be edified, so that it might be built up, and so that God might increasingly be glorified? That is the driving motivation and question in the life of the believer. With the gift that God has given me, how can I better honor Him? Being single just because you haven't found a spouse, but just going through the motions as a Christian, or perhaps not even going through the motions, just, um, you know, you go through to some church services, but you're not faithful in Bible reading, you're not making more time for ministry, you're not giving more in ministry of your gifts and abilities and resources, but instead in that season, you're just trying to store up everything you can and hide it away and hope for some day down the road when God's going to send a spouse across your path, that is not honoring or pleasing to him either. It is important that we prioritize our worship. We prioritize in using the seasons in which God has us for his glory. The next principle for single Christians is that sexual purity matters to God. It matters to God. Now, purity got a bad rap during the late 90s, early 2000s through the purity culture because there were some extra biblical assumptions that were made by some of the more prominent writers within that movement. As a consequence, people have sort of given this counter reaction to that. Sometimes the pendulum swings uh, in Christian culture just as it does in secular culture where one person pushes uh, a legalistic sort of approach and in response that uh, people push an anti-law sort of repro uh, approach where there, there are no rules or responsibilities whatsoever and this is a mistake. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we've referenced so many times, 
It, it begins this way. It says, now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And before this, by the way, the context, kind of the conversation that led to this discussion on marriage in the first place, uh, begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to read for you from uh, verse 18 and on. It says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What was that price with which we were bought? Oh, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the price with which we were bought. And so the Apostle Paul makes it very serious. He says very seriously that we need to flee from sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that there is not even to be a hint of sexual immorality uh, in the life of the believer. It is inexcusable for a believer to embrace the sort of lifestyle that is so common and, and encouraged in our culture at large, the sort of hookup culture, or even this idea that as long as you quote-unquote love somebody, that it doesn't matter to God that you engage in sexual immorality. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that uh, it is, as I have said many times, it is pro-marriage, it is pro-family, uh, it is pro-body, and it is pro pleasure. The Bible is pro-pleasure. Read through Song of Songs again. Uh, I've re, uh, reiterated that throughout the last few weeks, but that pleasure is to be explored uh, within the context of the institution of marriage and within the institution of marriage alone. As followers of Jesus Christ, this is something that we cannot uh, shy away from, we cannot compromise on. It matters, and it matters so much to God that he said it in those terms, you are not your own. Just because you desire it, because everybody around you is encouraging it, because you think it's good, or you can justify it in some way in your mind or emotionally, can I tell you today that God has clearly communicated his word, his commands. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. But along those lines, as I consider what the purity culture taught, and just to touch on one of those things that I think was a misrepresentation and even bordered on or went across the line on legalism, would be that so often in some of those publications, purity was treated as something we use to barter with God. Like you had to remain pure because, uh, sexually pure, because then you could go to God basically and say, well, I'm worthy of a spouse or I deserve a spouse because I'm not engaged in immorality. Or somehow if you had fallen into sexual sin, that you were unqualified to be married. This is not what the Bible teaches. Our purity isn't something with which we barter with God. In fact, we have nothing that we use to barter with God. We don't say, Lord, I'm doing this so that I will receive blank. Instead, as followers of Jesus Christ, we say, in this season, I will restrain the members of my flesh. I will be a faithful Christian. I will be a good steward over all of my faculties. I will follow the Lord and I will be obedient. I will surrender my desires at the foot of the cross. I will lay myself down there and I will wait to see what the Lord desires to do through my life. And so our purity isn't something with which we barter with God. And also, our past mistakes do not make one unworthy of marriage.
Can I tell you that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, all of your sin, all of your sin is nailed to the cross. It is remembered no more. There is no guilt and shame moving forward for the follower of Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts us while we're actively living in sin, but the Holy Spirit does not beat us over the head with our past mistakes. He does not hold it over us as something that hinders us from the future things that God has for our lives or even for the things that he desires to do today. Instead, uh, we should understand that there is no grace, uh, there's no disgrace, there is no shame for the believer. Our identity is not in our past mistakes. It is not in our sin. It's not in the things that we've done in the past. Our identity is Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you today to really believe that if you have fallen into that type of sin. Now, if you're actively living in that sin, leave it. Repent, turn and sin no more. But if you're somebody who is struggling with a past sin struggle and the enemy continues to remind you that this is who you are and continues to throw these sort of things out there, that is not who you are. You are in Jesus Christ. That is your identity. You are worthy of all the blessings that God has for your life because you are not those past things. You are in Jesus Christ. Those things have been forgiven. And by the way, I want to encourage you that if you believe that about yourself, then believe that about your spouse as well. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've entered into marriage and and you have a, a past, your spouse has a past, whatever that looks like, then you don't get to hold guilt and shame over somebody's head. That's not who they are. They're in Christ Jesus. If you believe that you've received God's grace and your identity, your nature have been transformed and you have no need to carry disgrace and shame any longer, then your spouse is worthy of that as well because that is true of them. It is true for all who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. But sexual purity matters to God. And the last principle principle I'm going to share with you today is that you aren't alone. You are not alone. The enemy wants us to feel like lone wolf Christians, wants us to feel like nobody else understands the way that we feel, the sort of struggles that we face, the doubts that we face, that we're somehow lesser Christians because we wonder, am I good enough? Um, is, is God withholding this for some reason? Is there some fault in me? We wrestle with things like this. And again, there's there's not. And God has a good plan for you, whatever that looks like, whether it's in singleness or in marriage. Um, but I want to tell you today that you are not alone. You are a part of a family, a family of God. God has so called his church to come alongside those who are single, to encourage them, as well as those who are married, to be a support, to be a resource to them. In our church, whenever we have... Um, special services or functions. Like this last Sunday, we had a child dedication and I communicated to the church family, you are not an audience. You are a congregation. You are a family. We are doing this life together. The early church did this so much better than we do now, uh, sadly. And, And this is something for us to continue to improve in. And whatever church you are a part, I encourage you to try to foster this sort of fellowship is that the early church spent a lot of time together, spent a lot of time eating together in deep conversation now, I encourage people to, you know, to spend time with those who are their own gender, to to share um, some of their, their deeper struggles and things along those lines, but spend time with fellow believers. Be a part of a life group or a small group, whatever your church calls it. Get to know the believers in your church family. Do not buy the lie that you are alone. Again, there are 117.6 million single adults in the United States today. 
you are not in any way alone. There are people who might not understand your unique circumstances of life, but there are a lot of people who can understand some of the questions, some of the doubts, some of the fears, some of the emotions that you feel regarding your singleness. So as I promised and sort of teased in the uh, opening, uh, I promised that we would provide some some encouragement or some information for married Christians to be able to encourage single Christians with. And so I just want to share uh, three of these as I move towards closing. And, and this list is not exhaustive. Um, but the first is, don't speak a plan over somebody's life. Don't come alongside somebody and say, you will get married. I know God has somebody out there for you. Don't, don't uh, hinder somebody by continually asking questions of them like, why aren't you married? What's, what's wrong? What, you know, why haven't you found a spouse? Don't, don't ask people questions like that, uh, especially you're not really close to somebody, but don't habitually ask people questions like this. Um, what it projects is that expectation, again, that the, the only good that God could have for somebody's life is marriage, and, and marriage and children, for instance, or something along those lines. We don't speak a plan over somebody's life as though we are sovereign over it. We can communicate to somebody regarding where they are in that season. We can listen to somebody. They can talk about what they desire, and we can encourage the desires that they have. We can provide uh, feedback and, and talk to them in plain terms about marriage. I'm going to talk about that next, but we don't speak a plan over somebody's life. We don't discourage somebody by by treating singleness as though it's something that has to be temporary or that there's something wrong with somebody because they are a single Christian. Again, and I know I feel like I'm kind of beating everybody over the head with this, but the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ, and many other faithful Christians throughout the history of Christianity have been single adults. The second, if someone feels led to be married, then communicate about marriage properly. Okay, so last week we talked about sort of the stigma about marriage and how our culture has this negative view of marriage. Don't be one of those married Christians that, that complains about your spouse. In fact, I encourage you, never, ever complain about your spouse. If there are problems in your marriage, communicate to your spouse. Communicate in the, the fellowship of your spouse with a pastor or with another counselor. Talk through those problems. But airing those problems out on social media, airing those problems out to your coworkers, complaining about your spouse, it, it undermines what God has called you to do, which is to submit to one another in reverence and in the fear of Christ. It undermines the, uh, the integrity, the character of your spouse, uh, and it, it's harmful. It doesn't benefit anybody. So communicate clearly. Uh, talk about the amazing gift the marriage is. Talk about the, how rewarding it is and how much of a blessing your spouse has been to your life. Communicate that goodness of marriage that I talked about last week. You can talk about the challenges of marriage and the difficult seasons that come in marriage, and it's okay to do that, but do so in an appropriate way. And talk about about those challenges in a way that helps somebody to understand that, you know, all of their problems are not going away if they get married. I've heard people say that. Well, you know, when I get married, then I'm going to stop struggling with this or I'm going to stop struggling with that. That's that's not the case. If you have a sin struggle, it's going to continue until you repent of it and turn away from it until you gain victory over it. If you are discontent as a single adult, 
you're probably going to be discontent as a married adult as well. Uh, there are no perfect seasons and there are no perfect spouses. There are no perfect situations in a fallen world, but we do serve a perfect God. And so we worship him and we trust him in whatever situation, whatever season we find ourselves in. And so we can communicate the challenges of marriage within that context. And the third and final is encourage personal spiritual growth. Encourage somebody to be seeking the Lord. We talked about those advantages in marriage, focus, flexibility, freedom. How can you better encourage your single adult friends and family members who are followers of Jesus Christ? How can you encourage them to better focus on Christ in the season? How can you encourage them to better use their flexibility and freedom for Christian service? How can you encourage them to use the gift that God has given them to better encourage and equip other believers. Those are the sort of things for us to think about, for us to consider, and for us to do as married followers of Jesus Christ. So today I want to encourage you with that. The highest calling for the Christian is to increasingly be like Jesus Christ, and I hope that that is true of your life. May the Lord bless you. Mm -hmm.